Welcome to the Lagan Valley Vineyard Podcast. We are a community passionate about seeing Lagan Valley filled with the presence and the teachings of Jesus. If you would like to connect with us or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website, laganvalleyvineyard.com. Well, good morning. If you are a, ve- a guest or a visitor, as Andy said this morning, we want to make sure you feel really welcome and at home here with us. And so if we haven't met before, my name is Heather and I have been part of this community for a number of years. This week we are continuing on in our series in Isaiah 61 called Rebuild the Ruins. And so as we look at this passage in Isaiah 61, we know that these are the words that Jesus used to describe his ministry and what he had been sent by the Father to do on earth. And so if you want to follow along with the passage today, you can find it on page 511 of the Black Bibles. I'll give you a wee minute just to find it. So page 511 of the Black Bibles. Today I'm going to read verses 1 to 7, just so that you have an overall sense of what's happening in this passage. Um, But we're then going to focus uh, on the rest of verse 1 and verse 2 this morning. Come Holy Spirit. This is what Isaiah 61 says. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting for the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks, foreigners will work your fields and vineyards, and you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, an everlasting joy will be yours. Let me just pray. God, we thank you for your word to us this morning. God, we pray, would you come and would you inhabit this space today? Come and speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to begin by telling you a story this morning. Whenever I was a child, I really hated it when things got broken and it felt like they couldn't be fixed. And I'm sure if you think back to your own childhood, you could think of an example of a time when maybe your favorite toy got broken or maybe something got smashed and you just knew that it couldn't be put back together again. Well, I had one of these moments when I was about age five. And at that time, I had this doll called Susan. 
Uh, such a good name. And Susan was like my most prized possession in the world. Like I took this doll everywhere with me. But in my room as a child, I slept beside the radiator. And so this one morning, I woke up and I thought to myself, like, what am I lying on? And I looked down to see that I was sleeping on top of Susan. Now, Susan had, as dolls did in those days, Susan had a really rigid body, but her face, her hands, her feet were made of like this sort of soft rubber. And so basically what happened was the heat from the radiator, as well as the weight of my wee body on top of her, had made it so that Susan's face was totally squashed in, right? And of course, age five, I was totally distressed by this. So I ran to my mum and said in the most dramatic voice ever, I have killed Susan. At age five, you know, I thought, like, if your face is squished in, you'd definitely be dead, you know. Um, good reasoning right there. I thought the doll was alive, you know. But anyway, my mom tried to calm me down, and she said, don't worry, I will take Susan to the dolly hospital. Um, and so my mom convinced me that she was going to get Susan fixed. And to my surprise, later on that night, I arrived home from school and Susan was there and was like, it was as if something, nothing had ever happened. Um, her face was normal and I was like, this is amazing. And I says to mom, did you take her to the Dolly Hospital? Yes, yes, I did. <laughs> Lies from parents, you know. Um, but anyway, and so life went on. Um, but then I began to notice this weird thing happening. Every time I give Susan a bath, the doll's face would get dirty. And I was like, what is happening here? And so I would spend loads of time scrubbing her face. But the more I scrubbed, the dirtier her face became. Well, years later, me and mum found the doll and we were talking about it and she said to me, you do know what your dad did to fix her? And I was like, no, I don't. Like, what happened? And she, be she began to tell me the story that on that day, she drove the doll to my dad at work and explained what had happened. My dad says, right, give the doll to me. And he looked at the doll and after a quick assessment, he said, well, Hilary, there's only one thing for it. And so he proceeded to take off Susan's head, right? Stuff it with Belfast Telegraph, right? And then put it back on again. Like, I think my mum thought he would do something really good because he was an electrician, but no, stuffed it with Belfast Telegraph, put it back on again. And so every time Susan came into contact with water, they reckoned that the ink from the newspaper print would seep through and start to make her face look dirty. And so this is how Susan ended up... Now, Brace yourselves for this, okay? This is how Susan ended up looking like this. <laughs> She's a good-looking girl, isn't she? Good-looking girl. Uh, she could be slightly compared to Chucky. I don't know. Um, bit scary. We're not going to leave that on for the rest of the service, so you don't have nightmares tonight. But anyway, what is the point of that story? The point is that in the end, my dad took what was broken... He intervened and he was able to restore that which I thought was completely beyond repair. And in my opinion, this is exactly what Isaiah 61 is all about. 
Isaiah 61 talks about how God, through the life of Jesus, takes what is broken within us and around us and intervenes to bring restoration even when we think things are completely beyond repair. The good news of the kingdom of God is that when is that God intends to intervene in our world, where things have been broken, where things need restoration, even when they look like they are beyond repair, God's intention is to intervene and bring restoration. Now, this intervention is not always timed as we would want it to be, and it, all, it doesn't always look like we would want it to be either. As humans, we often want God's intervention on our own terms. So, for example, we often want God to intervene before anything bad happens in our lives. Or if something bad does happen, we want God to intervene in a certain way in our situation. But we know that Scripture does not promise this. God never promises that our circumstances will be easy or that our lives will turn out to be the way we want them to because we believe in him. He never says it. And often maturity in Christ is seen in those who, regardless of their circumstances, continue to trust in God and in the undentable hope that he offers to us even in the worst of times. And so here in this passage in Isaiah 61, we see that the good news of the kingdom is often when we offer him our feelings of being heartbroken, feeling imprisoned, our grief, our despair, our shame, our disgrace. And he comes and in exchange gives us healing, freedom, favor, comfort, joy, and honor. And so today, as we look at Isaiah 61, uh, verses 1 and 2, we're going to think about how Jesus meets us, firstly, when we feel brokenhearted, and secondly, when we feel totally bound up. And we're going to see how he exchanges those things in our lives for healing and freedom. Whenever Jesus talks about healing the brokenhearted, the word here for brokenhearted describes those whose hearts have been broken in pieces, shattered, crushed, or people's hearts who are on the point of collapse. And unfortunately, there are many things in life which leave us feeling that way. More often than not, it's when circumstances have come against us or uh, relationships break down to the point where we feel completely brokenhearted. But Jesus assures us here that he's able to exchange our brokenheartedness for healing. And many times throughout the Gospels, Jesus brings healing to people's physical bodies. But very often we know that in these moments, he's also healing their emotional burdens as well. So, for example, those who suffered the heartbreak of being called unclean in that society were declared clean by him. Those who had been ignored by society like lepers were healed and suddenly um, had access to the community again. Those who were hated, such as tax collectors or prostitutes, became some of Jesus' disciples. And therefore, we see throughout the Gospels over and over and over again, those who were disregarded, despised and distrusted by society found love and healing and acceptance in Jesus. But it wasn't only those who were seen as outcasts. I believe that everybody who encountered Jesus and who was 
open-hearted towards his teaching, encountered radical love that made a difference in their lives. One of my favorite stories in the Gospels is when Jesus resurrects Jairus' daughter. And Jairus was a leader in the synagogue. He was well-known in his community. Um, He was someone who was familiar with Scripture, as well as probably having cared for maybe the synagogue building, organizing events, conducting meetings, and supervising teaching. So this was someone who had experience being around the teachings of God. But when his daughter was dying and he heard about the miracles that Jesus was doing, his response was to find Jesus and he literally begs Jesus to come and heal his daughter. She was the only daughter that he had. And Jesus understands the desperation and distress of this dad, and he agrees to come and help him. But unfortunately, on the way there, his daughter dies. And so by the time they reach the house, there are already mourners wailing in grief over the child's death. And Jesus goes in, and he clears the place out, and he takes the little girl by the hand, And he says to her, little girl, arise. And she stood up and started walking around. Now, can you imagine the moment of exchange that took place in Jairus in that moment? Immediately, his heartbreak, his pain, his despair was exchanged for hope, joy, and comfort. And yet, many of us know what it is to have had family members, or relationships, or dreams die right in front of us. And it can leave us asking the question, is God not present here? How could he allow this level of heartbreak or pain in my life? And our conclusions in these times can often be either one of two things. You know, either he must not be present, or if he is present, he must not care. And those things are simply not true. A few years ago, I was going through an extremely painful and difficult time in my life. And during this time, I began to read a book called Luminous Dark by Alan Emerson. Many of you will know of Alan Emerson, who leads Emmanuel Church in Portadown. And maybe you've heard part of his story too. But for those of you who have never heard his story, In his book, he describes the extremely painful journey of losing his wife, Lindsay, to cancer at age 23. And his book is brutally honest about what it it was like for him to navigate the pain and heartbreak of losing his wife so young. But when I read his book, one of the questions he asked stood out to me more than any other. He says this, As I stared into the dark abyss of my future, utterly distraught, traumatized and scared, I saw that my future would be determined by my answer to one particular question. It was a question that I did not want to answer, but a question that I have come to realize that we must all answer. The question is, what will you do with your pain? And he goes on in this book to describe how he learnt how to bring his pain to God, sometimes in anger, sometimes with questions, sometimes with brutal honesty, but he learnt how to bring it to him. And this is actually a biblical thing to do, to come to God with our pain and have an honest conversation with him. 
We see this pattern continually throughout the Psalms where David comes and literally pours his broken heart out before God and God comes and pours his healing into him. The theologian Walter Brueggemann says that we continually see this pattern through the Psalms, that the psalmist is going through a season in life where things are generally good. And he calls this stage of life orientation where things are going well. And he says, when suddenly something happens in a person's life to cause pain and heartbreak, which he calls disorientation, It is in this stage of disorientation that the psalmist returns to God with his pain in order that he can move into the final stage of this process where he finds hope for the future and healing from God called reorientation. And unfortunately for us, this cycle sounds familiar, doesn't it? Things are going good in our lives when suddenly something happens and we immediately are sent into this place of disorientation or as we like to say in Northern Ireland, you know, we don't know what end of us is up. But unfortunately, it's in this place that instead of going to God often with our pain, what we do is try to use other things to numb the pain. And whether it is addiction or uh, eating too much or alcohol, whether it is burying our pain and just trying to get on with things, whether it is spending so much time at work or trying to get into a new relationship in order to try and ease things, but our pain remains unhealed because we have not brought it to him. Jesus was sent by God to bind up our broken hearts, not stick a plaster over the top of them while the wound festers underneath, but to bring deep healing to the places where we feel most broken. And as I said at the start, I hated it as a child when things were broken and it looked like they couldn't be fixed. But I learned that my dad took what was broken He intervened and he was able to restore that which I thought was beyond repair. And as an adult, I have learned exactly the same thing about God. When I place my broken heart into his hands, even when it looks like it cannot be repaired, he intervenes and he brings about restoration within me. In the next verses in this chapter, we see Jesus declaring that he was also sent to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. And in order to understand these verses, we must first understand the Old Testament concept of jubilee. Now, jubilee is one of my favorite concepts in the Old Testament. And if you've never heard of it, it can be found in Leviticus 25. And it's basically this law that said in Israel, every 50 years, all prisoners and captives were set free. All slaves would go free. All financial debts were forgiven and all work in fields and vineyards stopped for a full year. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, that sounds like pretty good news, right? Like to have all your debts cancelled, to stop working for a year because God told you to class. Um, And if you were a slave or a prisoner, you got to go free. Basically, Jubilee was this time of celebration set apart by God for an economic, cultural, environmental, and communal reset. And to be honest, in the middle of perma-crisis, I think we could do with one of those right now. 
Now, scholars are unsure as to whether Israel actually observed this law or whether they were disobedient to God in that. But the fact that God designed this law in the first place demonstrates that there was this desire in the heart of God for freedom to always be within grasp for his people. So unless you died young, most people would live to experience this divine reset, this jubilee, at least once in their lifetime. And it was like there was this divine exchange, all the things that kept you bound up in exchange for all the freedom that you could never earn on your own. And so in these verses in Isaiah 61, the language that is used here is exactly the same as the language that is used whenever uh, the Old Testament talks about Jubilee. And so when Jesus says that he is proclaiming freedom for the captives, release for the prisoners, and the year of the Lord's favor, which is simply another way to say Jubilee, he is saying to those listening to him, there is a time coming in the future when all debts will be forgiven, all prisoners will be set free. Everything that keeps you enslaved now will stop because of the kingdom of God that I am bringing. He's saying for eternity, if you believe in me, you will be free. You will experience all the freedom you've ever desired. But it's crucial, like all of these verses, we see how they apply in the now as well as in the future. And so Jesus is saying that freedom and deliverance were also available now. Throughout the Gospels, we see many occasions where Jesus brings freedom as he forgives people's sins and casts out demons from those who were oppressed. And while many of us will never go through the experience of deliverance from demons in that way, we would be completely naive as Christians to think that the enemy does not use the same old tricks of getting us trapped in cycles of sin or getting us trapped in cycles where we believe lies about ourselves that leave us feeling oppressed. Someone said to me recently that as Christians, we often get so good at managing the oppression we are under from the enemy that we never actually go looking for freedom from it. And that is so true. Jesus did not come with a management plan for each of us. He came to completely set us free from every way that the enemy oppresses us. A good example of this is seen in the film, The Shawshank Redemption, which tells the story of some inmates in an American prison in the 1950s. And in the film, one of the prisoners called Brooks gets granted parole after spending 50 years in jail. And he struggles to adjust to the outside world so much that he ends up taking his life. And when Morgan Freeman's character is asked about this by another inmate, like, why would he do this when he finally had the freedom that he had been looking for all of his life? Morgan Freeman says these words, but I tell you, these walls are funny. First you hate them, then you get used to them. If enough time passes, you get so that you depend on them. And I wonder how many of us have also learned, you know, not only to get used to our presence of fear or anxiety or hopelessness or addiction, but we've come to the point where we actually depend on these things in our lives and we feel like we couldn't survive without them. The things that we used to hate, we now use as coping mechanisms of survival. And it's into these situations that Jesus whispers, there is freedom available. 
He doesn't just give us a management plan. He says, I want you to be completely free. In the same way that the prisoners, the slaves, and those who were in debt experienced freedom on the year of Jubilee. Once again, we need to remember that our Heavenly Father has the ability to take what is broken, to intervene, and restore that which looks like it is beyond repair. And so as we come to finish off this morning, I want to say that I recognize that for some of you in the room, you're facing really difficult things in your life right now. And it might seem that as we're talking about this today, um, and talking about giving God our brokenness, uh, giving God the things that imprison us in exchange for his healing and freedom, <clears throat> it might sound like oversimplified, or you might even say, well, what is going on internally with me is beyond repair. As I finish off this morning, I want to read some words from a Christian author called Lisa Tykehurst. Lisa writes about how she felt when, uh, after 25 years of marriage, her marriage broke down um, after her husband having numerous affairs. And I love what she says. Just sit back and listen to this. This is quite lengthy, but I think what she says is really, really good for what we're talking about this morning. She says this. I grabbed my chest while tears slipped down my cheek in an unending stream. The pain in my heart wasn't physical, but the stabbing emotional hurt was so intense I could hardly breathe. My life had gone from feeling full and whole to being obliterated beyond recognition. Never had I felt more shattered and alone. We live in a broken world where broken things happen. So it's not surprising that things get broken in our lives as well. But what about those times when things aren't just broken, but are shattered beyond repair? Shattered to the point of dust. At least when things are broken, there's some hope that you can glue the pieces back together. But what if there aren't even pieces to pick up right in front of you? You cannot glue dust. It's hard to hold dust. What was something so very precious is now reduced to nothing. But weightless powder, even the slightest wind, could carry away. We feel desperately hopeless. Thus begs us to believe that the promises of God no longer apply to us. We want God to fix it all, edit this story so it has a different ending, repair this heartbreaking reality. But what if fixing, editing, and repairing isn't all what God has in mind for us in this shattering. Dust is the exact ingredient God loves to use. Of all the things God could have used to make man, he chose to use the dust. And when mixed with water, dust becomes clay. Clay, when placed in the potter's hands, can be formed into anything that the potter dreams up. Dust doesn't have to signify the end. Dust is often what must be present for the new to begin. And so as the band comes up uh, and begins to play, I'd love just to invite you to stand where you are.
If you are part of the prayer team here uh, or you're a tribe leader and you're willing to come and pray for people today, I'd love just to invite you to come to the front now just as we think about responding to what it is that God's saying to us. So if you're in the prayer team, if you're a tribe leader, it'd be great if you could come to the front. So there's two things as we come to respond today that I think are on God's heart for us. The first thing is, if you have been through a season of real heartbreak in this last season, and I get the sense that for some of you in the room, it might not even have been one thing. It might have been loads of things that came at once. And just like Alan Emerson said in his book, it has left you feeling traumatized. And I feel like God is inviting you today to bring your broken heart to him in exchange for healing. I actually got the picture while I was praying for the services this morning of um, people carrying urns like they would do with ashes. And I feel like it's almost like the dust of your situation, like you're carrying it around with you everywhere you go. And just in the same way, we would never do that, you know, with ashes in real life. I feel like there is something of God wanting you to be able to set down the dust today and to be able um, to pick something up of his healing. Um, that it's almost like he wants to make those um, that dust in your life into clay this morning and that that clay will be used by God to minister to other people in their times of need. The second grip I feel like are in the room today are those of you who feel imprisoned by something in your life, whether it be fear or anxiety, confusion, patterns of addiction or anything that you feel like you're struggling to break. And today I believe that God wants to bring freedom from lies that you believe about yourself or the oppression that the enemy has tried to put on you, even if you don't know where it comes from, but you feel like in this moment you need freedom. And for some of you, you may know, just like as I read that quote from the Shawshank Redemption, that you use some of these things to protect yourself because you've actually long stopped hoping for freedom. Uh, but God wants to bring freedom today. And so if any of those things make sense to you, I would love for you to respond by coming to the front and a member of the team would love to pray with you. And as we often said, there's nothing magical, there's nothing amazing that particularly happens because we... Um, at the front but actually there's something that does happen as we step out and we say to God God I want to deal with this today there's something happens as we come uh, to other people and ask for them to meet with God with us in that moment and so even though it's difficult what I would love to do is invite you to come so let me just pray um, as we finish up and as worship begins, feel free to come to the front, grab one of the team and get someone to pray with you. Let me just pray. God, we thank you for every single person standing in this room today, every single person listening to this message online. And God, we just pray, would you come 
you bring healing, God, to the broken parts of our lives where we feel heartbroken and in places, God, that we feel imprisoned. We pray, God, would you come and increase hope in us that actually you want to meet with us in those places and exchange the things that we have, God, for your hope, for your healing, for your freedom. In Jesus' name.